Hey gang, we're back with your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. Today's guest comes to us from the Pacific Northwest, just up by Seattle. We talk about stockmanship, about marketing, about his forage chain, and the opportunities that COVID has brought in his business. As usual, we take plenty of rabbit trail detours. Welcome to the show, Mr. Kyler Beard. So Kyler, tell us where you're at and what, you, what you've been up to these last few days. Uh, right in the middle of Washington State, um, about uh, a little over 100 miles from Seattle. So right when you get on the east side of the Cascade Mountains is kind of when you get into the rural part of Washington. But the little valley that we're in is close enough to Seattle that there's a lot of people that commute back and forth so they can get the western lifestyle. Um, last couple of days right now really is just moving hot wire, uh, having to haul some water out to some cows where we're at then i have a few hundred irrigated acres of grass that we have to change water on and move cattle around so wanted to be a cowboy and really ended up being more of a grass farmer understandable so i don't know your history that well it's my understanding that your operation looked a lot different 18 months ago can you tell me what it looked like uh you know 18 months two years ago prior to COVID, prior to covid um, really it's been changing quite a bit lately. So I, I started out um, custom grazing other people's cattle on other people's property. And that kind of worked into me buying some, some property of my own and, um, backgrounding cattle. And so in order to get cheap feed, I ended up getting a, a mixer box and some byproducts basically to feed during the off season. And this is where things kind of changed for me with COVID. Um, I ended up feeding all byproducts. So we got some bakery waste, some spent brewer's grain, and I was really doing that to background cattle as cheaply as possible. And thought maybe I could could make some fat cattle and, and sell people on the fact that we're upcycling all these products that would otherwise be in a landfill. And had some USDA dates pre-COVID, so the plan was to take eight head over had dates to do eight head per month. And I was mainly going to try to do restaurant business with those. Um, and COVID hit and I had probably only 50 head of cattle that were finished and ready to go and could, could no longer sell the rest of the cattle. I wasn't going to use on the commodity market because out here in Washington, the packing plants actually got shut down with COVID and made a backlog of cattle. So we started selling cattle like crazy. Uh, custom was just going nuts. I had my USDA dates. I kind of switched gears because all the restaurants were getting shut down and started selling uh, cuts of beef in 25-pound boxes. And so that started a, a beef business for me, which has really been a whirlwind. Last year, couldn't get enough dates. Uh, to get cattle harvested, couldn't keep enough in. I, of course, I went crazy and got more cattle on feed, and that turned out to be a mistake. Um, so trying to figure out how to get that portion of everything uh, back to scale and figure out what I need on hand and the logistics of that um, have been a whole nother, whole nother business that started really just to move some, some cattle that I finished as a trial experiment. Um but over the last few years, from a grazing standpoint, um, I've been able to get into and get in, get some pasture leases, and the neighbors see what's going on, and I talk to the neighbor about their pasture. So that's been expanding. Custom grazing is probably the biggest part of what I'm doing. 
uh, running other people's cattle. I've got a handful of my own that I, that I put in with them. But sure. So, yeah. so that, that's how COVID changed what I was doing. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. How did you get there? So where are you from? Uh, and uh, How'd you grow up and what's your education like? <laughs> okay. Go way back. Um, oh yeah. My immediate <laughs> my immediate family actually was not in agriculture, and I grew up on the west side of the mountains in Washington State. But my grandparents were rodeo stock contractors, and I pretty much came out of the womb and wanted to be a cowboy. I mean, you can't hardly find a picture of me without a cowboy hat on. Don't know why. Um, and so, grew up loving horses, dogs, animals. Would spend my summers with my grandparents and got a lot of handling livestock, but not necessarily any, any ranching or agricultural background. Um, and so I did that. I mean, rodeo was my life until I was probably in my early twenties. Uh, my grandpa was, was getting ready to sell his rodeo business and kind of worked through everybody else in the family and everyone was leaving. So I, I left that and started riding horses, um, still wanting to be a, a cowboy, but didn't really know what that meant. Um, so when I was in my mid twenties, I got a job with a, a local rancher here in Ellensburg and they make some, some grass paths and have some really nice cattle. So I kind of got an introduction in grazing and, um, they were into low stress cattle handling. So that was kind of where I got my, my introduction to a lot of this stuff. Um, and then just picking up, you know, going to a couple of different schools, um, ended up going to the, the unnamed ranching for profit school really before I um, even got into ranching. So I wasn't able to utilize everything that what they had, what they were teaching. Um, I didn't have any numbers, so I didn't have a business yet. Um, but kind of the SWOT analysis is what stuck out for me. So all the ranchers in our, our area are really worried about development, um, land prices going up, how competitive it is to get grass. And so to me, the part that's really helped my business grow is that the property is being developed. So a lot of the pasture leases that I have might kind of be pieced together, but I'll have five or six different owners in one area putting places back together. Um, and so that, that's kind of where I started, but the, the stockmanship is really what I ended up having a knack for and just kind of stumbled onto it. I think from growing up and always having a love for animals, and with the rodeo company, um, there's not a whole lot of empathy for the animals all the time. I mean, they care about the animals and they want to see them treated right. Um, but getting into the horsemanship and the stockmanship and seeing that there is another level of care and, and looking at how the, the animals are reacting and by yeah, what you're that's doing. What I was, that's what I was going to ask is, is there a big contrast of, of, your skill set with rodeo and then when you went to to kind of ranching what 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 was that contrast like or that's those things that stuck out to you for me uh, yeah i mean for me you get to handle animals so much in the rodeo world it's pretty easy to get them trained i shouldn't say easy but you're doing it so often that they get trained so depending on what you're doing it can be really good or really bad um, and even in the rodeo world, that was kind of what I was, I, I was still better than average at that. So if I were from the age 12 to 
Oh, I'm going to say 18. Um, I was, I was the guy that would be loading the animals going up to the buck and shoots for the rodeos. Um, and you, I could see a big difference from having the same crew consistently doing that and how you're handling them. Um, even back then, you know, but not yelling, not making a bunch of noise, the way that you interact with other people, putting a little more emphasis on how the animals feel about what you're doing, um, is, is probably the, the bigger difference. So for me, it's been really fun, but a lot of the stuff where there's quite a bit of carryover and I've, I've actually often wanted to go not necessarily get back into the, the rodeo world, but it would be fun with what I know now to go back and handle the rodeo, rodeo animals again. I'd like to explore that a little sure. bit. What, what, what do you mean by that? Um, so for instance, this is, I mean, I mean, it's the same, same thing with, with cows, I guess, where they don't naturally want to change eyes or they want to see you out of both eyes. Um, you know, just the repetitive, if you're going to sort stuff that are going to the, the left, you're making sure that they see you in the left eye all the time. So you're always drawing on their left eye, just being able to start them, stop them with the position of your animal or your horse's head, um, see how little it can take. But most of the time when you're bucking animals, they, they have a delivery. So whatever way the shoot gate opens, they're supposed to turn the opposite direction of that. So you have a right and left delivery. So to, I, I feel like I could almost go back and take horses and just from which I handle them out of decide which delivery you needed. And so there's, this isn't really what I thought we were going to be talking about, but <laughs> there's, uh, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's nights where you're trying to put on a rodeo performance and you have, four bucking shoots go in each direction. And so you need an even split of animals to go each direction. So there's almost always a debate where you're saying, well, this horse should really be a right delivery, but we need more animals going to the left. So the performance doesn't slow down. So we're going to put it over here. I really almost feel like I could predetermine which direction those horses are going to circle by which I are the most comfortable out of. And then also from a bucking standpoint, a lot of the reason that horses get bothered and would potentially buck is when they're going from one eye to the other, when they're not, comfortable with you in their blind spot so it would almost behoove you to only do stuff out of one eye if you want them to buck <laughs> instead of both so there's one eye that they're more comfortable in so when something's going on in the other eye um it would almost create a an, an opportunity for them to buck I, and I, then just just the general you know the, the more generalized thought of it i mean loading trucks with the stockmanship making the right thing hard and the wrong thing easy having a better idea of where to put pressure i, I mean a lot of that stuff i think it could be really fun with rodeo animals because you handle them so often so let, let's back up so like people have a dominant eye like you, know, you can be right-handed and left eye dominant or left you know left-handed and right eye dominant so animals like hypothetically, what's to say that they don't have a dominant eye as well? You know, that's that's kind of what I'm getting the idea from your horse. You know, your your little horse anecdote, your uh, bucking horse anecdote, is that some would either like to go to the left or go to the right, and you could pick that up by you know how they carried their eye coming down the chute or coming down the alley. So I wonder if that's yeah. the same thing for cows. If some cows prefer left or the right, I mean. Obviously, if you've had some pink eye and you got some blind ones, it doesn't matter. They're not going to see out of that sight anyway. Yeah, i I don't know as much 
I haven't paid too much attention to if one eye is dominant or one eye isn't. Um, but I do know a lot of times it's set up whatever eyes are going to be more comfortable in has a lot to do with how your corrals are set up. If you're using the same corrals every time where they're get more used to you in one eye. And then it really just kind of depends on how you handle them, whether they're better right. in that eye or worse. Because <laughs> yeah. horses, it really makes a big difference. Everybody does everything on the left side and not the right. And a lot of times from back when I was riding outside horses for other people, most horses are actually worse on the left side. They might be a little bit more scared on the right, but they're actually worse on the left. Yeah. Interesting. So, Kyler, I think it would be you're going to change gears. Sorry. <laughs> so you're in a you're in like a really cool area geographically that you can source your cattle from from Hawaii, right? Is that mainly where you source your cattle? Um, not anymore. When I was custom grazing, a lot of the cattle were coming from Hawaii. So the okay. there's a family here in Ellensburg at the receiving station for all the Hawaiian cattle. Yeah. And then they kind of sublease them out to other people. Um, yeah. So because we're so close to a seaport, they bring in, I'm shooting from the hip and it changes every year, but I'm going to say five to 10,000 head of Hawaiian cattle will come in on containers and get unloaded here. And so as a custom grazer, it's perfect because they're only about 390 pounds when they show up. And so if you're looking at pounds per acre and getting gains, um, I mean, you can run two of those things <laughs> almost for what, you know, a bigger domestic animal is. Um, so you're able to run them for the whole summer, but it, it is pretty neat to see that part of the operation go on with all those cattle coming in. I'd want to see that someday. Like I, I've seen the livestock transporters like, uh, you know, from Australia and New Zealand, but I never really seen the ones that, uh, transport in and out of Hawaii. I'll have to, I'll have to look that yeah. up later. Yeah. Have have you had any weird health problems um, with those Hawaiian cattle being shipped so far? No, they, they actually come in and they're really tired when they show up. I think they said there's about a 15% shrink. Um, and I, I could be wrong with those numbers, but they come in, they have feed well, and water. Normal the whole is 4%, time. right? Shrink is, well, normal yeah. is 4%, right? So that's huge. De- depending on how far you go, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's not well, like pretty tired. It's not yeah. like that's an overnight boat trip either. It takes it's a like few Noah's days. No. <laughs> yeah, and it really depends on what the seas are like as far as how long it takes them to get here. Um, there's sometimes in the early spring they kind of quit shipping them across because they would be days off schedule because of what the seas were like. So they pretty much wait until it warms up. May, June is when they start coming in now, and they used to try to do it earlier than that. I can only imagine what high winds and heavy seas are like on a ship hauling cattle. That would be uh, <laughs> no, no thanks. Some of the stock tenders say they get up there and they're they're renting out the containers, and they're saying when the seas are bad. I mean, the containers will t- start as the boat leans. The containers will start to split apart, and then as it sets down, they all click back together, and they're up on the sides of these with a hose, hosing them out as it's going on. <laughs> Sounds like it can get pretty pretty scary no thanks no thanks yeah (laughs) so have you had to unlearn very much uh stockmanship wise horsemanship wise from your early days um really i 
not really. I mean, I almost feel like it gave me a different perspective. And I mean, like I said, for, for some reason, I always had more empathy for animals than most. Um, I mean, it just always, even as a kid, if there was, you know, my grandpa always had border collie dogs around that didn't do anything, but I was always the dog's best friend, even as a little guy, you know, I'd lay down and take a nap and I would be the one that pet on them where everyone else would just kind of walk by them. Uh, I had to change quite a bit. So the, the biggest thing is not making noise. And I was not a big noise maker anyways, but I would get told that I need to make noise as a kid growing up. Um, and so I, I can remember being a little kid and I, I really didn't start talking until I was about 25. Um, I mean, my, my good friends, I would talk to a little bit, but I've always been really quiet. So it was pretty easy for me not to make a lot of noise. And I, I can remember being eight, that, nine years old. I don't old. see that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody says. Yeah, watching uh, like, your TikTok watch, videos, um, you just seem really outgoing. So that's interesting. Quiet little kid. Yeah, I, I wasn't. <laughs> um, but the, some of the stuff I can remember being a kid, you know, everybody would, it's more about blocking cattle or, you know, blocking openings instead of showing stuff where to go. So that part of it, even at a really young age, I could see, and it still is probably one of my biggest pet peeves when I'm, when I'm trying to do stuff with people with cattle is if there's an opening in the road ahead or you're trying to get them in the corral, everybody goes and stands where they think they're going to turn instead of showing the cattle where to go. And that has in the rodeo world is exactly what happens wherever you're at. I mean, if there's a gate that you want them to go out, there's four people standing at the gate and you're in a, you know, a rodeo arena that's, 200 by 150 and you have four people within 10 feet of where you actually want the animals to go. So that, that part has actually always stood out to me even before I got into the stockmanship. But for the most part, um, just kind of figuring out how to be a little bit quieter, paying more attention to my body position. Um, and really just looking at the animals more than, than what I used to as far as how they're feeling. One of the good insights I got from Bob Kenford was pay attention to the eyes and the ears, but try to drive from the hip, like focus on the hip of the cow and you can get a lot more done focusing on that hip than you can trying to catch an eye or catch an ear. Have you noticed anything like that? I I haven't. I really need to go spend some more time around people like Bob. So the, the only education that I got was from Dr. Tom Nossinger. And I watched him do some cattle demonstrations and he really didn't, his demonstrations were a little lackluster, but he, he was talking more about the idea of stockmanship and he was kind of talking about the shape of the head and drawing the cattle to you. And so far for me, and a lot of it probably has to do with my dogs. Um, I, I do write at the hip quite a bit, but I try to draw the eye and I'm looking at, looking at it in more of a herd instinct and kind of making the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy as a herd. And so the biggest thing to me is finding diagnosing where the front is and working the front. And and I'm not talking specifically about one animal with the head or the hip, but the front of the herd is going to be wherever the majority of their heads are facing. If it was one animal, the front of the animal is going to be the head. And I, it seems like if I'm, and I'm sure Bob is not just 
he's not riding behind at the hip, but he's directing him from the hip. I haven't, I haven't been able to see Bob do anything yet. And I'm really anxious after listening to your, your podcast with him. Um, but you know, everybody gets confused talking about the front of the herd where if you say work the front, you're in a pasture, they think the front is wherever you're trying to go. And the front is wherever the majority of the head is, heads are facing. And that's something that I think people diagnose really late. And then essentially you're, you're walking around and the cattle are just running around you the whole time instead of you being able to diagnose the front and send them and then get back to the front to keep them lined out. And that's where the dogs make such a big difference to me. And I really want my dogs to, to be able to just go bring cattle. I mean, I've, I've kind of went from having dogs that were really trained with lots of commands to a couple years I had dogs that all they knew was come here and load up um, to now I'm trying to find an even mix that's okay. But I actually had one of my little puppies that I was pretty dang excited about getting run over. So now I'm down to one good dog and a, another puppy that's partially deaf. So I can't really say a whole lot to him when he gets out there anyways. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of back to just letting them bring cattle to me. And then I really like to work the front from more of a herd standpoint than specifically honing in on one animal. So I'm really big on drawing, drawing the eye to me and riding by to show them where to go and getting them back, you know, riding by to send cattle. Sure. So let's talk about your dogs for a few minutes. What kind of dogs do you have? Border collies. Um, just straight up border collie. Just, yeah, ranch bred border collies. So I ended up, when I went to work for that ranch when I was in my mid-20s, um, I had one old, I'm going to call him a Catahoula, but he really wasn't a Catahoula. He was kind of a cur dog that I had got from someone that was my buddy when I was doing rodeo stuff, got him as a puppy and wanted something that would bite and started getting into to cattle stuff and trained him to bring cattle to me. And that was, that was quite the process because there's no part of him that wanted to do that. So it was more blocking him and just get into the back. And I bought another border collie that was a year old because I needed another dog and she wouldn't bite a biscuit, but she had a lot of eye and a lot of herd instincts. And for a long time, I got a lot done with those two dogs and my buddy's dog bred her. And that's where I got the, the dad that was so good. And he was just kind of the ugly duckling that was left over and had a, terrible overbite and bred it into all of the puppies that I have. Um, but he's, he's been somewhere, I don't want to say famous, but he's thrown a lot of really, really good dogs around here, not papered. I mean, they really are just ranch dogs that were good dogs, bred more good dogs. I think good, a lot of good ranch dogs don't have papers. Do you yeah. train them yourself, Kyler, the dogs? Yeah, but I mean, the nice part about the dogs, the dogs that I really like, you're really not training them. You're more just letting they them just do what know. they want to. It's an instinct. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. They just want to go bring cattle. So yeah. it's more just setting it up when the cattle are going in the right direction. And yeah, I have an English, two English bulldogs, so I have no idea what that means, instinct, because <laughs> they'll do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Eat shoes and slobber everywhere. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, lounge around and snore. Yep. So, in your normal day, you you know, you mentioned you do poly wire, and you know, from your TikToks, I've seen you on horses, I've seen you 
in the side by side and the uh, telehandler, and I've seen you out running reels. So, ha- you haven't been strip grazing running your poly wire system very long, have you? Almost the whole time. Um, so, because I went to the the ranching for profit school, that was kind of my introduction to strip grazing, or I don't remember what they were calling it then, rotational grazing. Um, so kind of, you know, you have to design the pasture plans there and pretty much everything I was doing is irrigated ground, which is really, I mean, that's child's play for grazing. You can make some pretty big mistakes and it's going to recover. And, you know, pretty much everyone will graze it off during the growing season and, and be done. And it really, I think it might've been, can't remember who it was that I heard say it. Maybe Dave, maybe Dave Pratt, anybody can manage grass when it's growing. That's, that's kind of what I feel like the, the irrigated ground is. So I've been doing doing a lot of stuff on irrigated ground, and it wasn't until just about three or four years ago I started getting range ground. And so that's been that's been a little bit more fun for me and trying to figure out how to get get water and get cattle moved around and trying to do trying to experiment with some different different techniques as far as you know driving cattle away from water and placing them in placing them in certain areas and leaving them. The hard part is I'm so spread out. I can't be there very often. So a lot of times I'll go, you know, I'll spend an hour and a half getting cattle settled and go back to my pickup. And by the time I'm driving out, I can see the cattle are all back where I sent them away from. Um, so trying to figure out how to settle them in smaller paddocks comparatively than, than most and where they're going to come to water and go back. That's been, that's been kind of fun. And then, you know, trying to figure out, seems like one day pasture moves work best for me. It, it's pretty hard for me to get a uniform uniform bite and keep cattle happy if I stay there longer than that. Even on a two or three day pasture moves in these range grounds, there's very minimal plants that are actually desirable for the cattle. And so doing a two day pasture move, I mean, you can see it almost in the water consumption where a fresh a fresh paddock, I mean, we'll go through 6,000 gallons a day. If it's a paddock that we get wrong and they stay there for two days to get a uniform bite, I mean, we'll go through almost half as much water that second day. That's how big of a difference it is. Um, wow. So, so that's been the, a lot more poly wire. And, I mean, running it up through trees, it's, it's kind of fun, some of the stuff that, that we've been doing there. But that, that really is what has me more interested than – the irrigated ground that I was doing for about the past 10 years and still have the irrigated ground. I just don't show up very much because I don't think it's that cool. <laughs> I understand that. So <laughs> what, uh, what kind of stocking rates you've been running at with your polywire? Have you been raising that over time, been able to raise stocking rate and, and forage over time? Yeah. So some of it, so I, I've been able to add about a section a year, um, in this area that I've been going to. And just for instance, one of the, the first place that I got up there was, it, it was in a ranch, but always selectively grazed and really not grazed very hard and planted to a lot of intermediate ryegrass. Um, and so it was mostly a monoculture. I mean, there are shrub steps where there would be some different forages and, and different stuff, but the the third year that I had it is when I saw the biggest increase where I almost doubled the head days and really just from just from rotational grazing or putting up hot wires. 
And I think at that point I was doing two or three, two to three day pasture moves um, and had that kind of a difference. And then this year, so last year I got a new piece of ground that was in CRP and that was a real struggle. I mean, that has forage value of almost absolutely nothing and trying to keep the cows going on that and trying to get an even graze. I mean, at the end of the season last year, there's plenty of dead standing forage and putting out, putting out some supplement for the cows. And then we actually started trying to feed some alfalfa <laughs> on, on top of it, which did some cool things for getting alfalfa seed out there and knocking down some of the dead grass. But I think it was about October 10th. I said, the heck with this. I'm not, I'm not putting up poly wires, hauling water and hay all at the same time because the, the ponds had all dried up by then. So I, I called it quits and brought them back. And that pasture looked amazing this year, but it's about half the length of everything else. And I don't, I mean, my only thought really is that there was just nothing going on in the soil that had been sitting dormant for 40 years. Um, the grass was green. It shot up. There was lots of life. You can, you can feel the difference in your feet walking across it compared to the other CRP grounds right across the road but it just didn't really go anywhere. So my head days on that this year were half of what they were last year, but the cattle were much more content. The feed was better. There's probably about twice as many plants. It's just not near as tall. Really be so interested it, to see what that looks like next year and what kind of production you get out of it next year. Yeah, me too. And and this year was, I mean, we are in a drought just like a lot of other places. So I don't think we've had a rainfall event since June and that was, not much. I want to say a quarter inch. I mean, it, this is the the driest on record in quite a while. What's which is also kind of a precipitation um, per year? 16 inches around there, 16 to 18 inches. Okay. So it's still arid, I guess. 16, is that the cutoff for arid? Yeah, well, that close to Seattle, I thought you'd get more rain. More, so did I. Yeah, it, it's almost a different, I mean, it's, when you get to the east side of the Cascades, I mean, it's, it's like it changes. It's, it's pretty arid. A lot of sagebrush. Uh, I should say sagebrush now, but a lot of range ground. And the little valley that we're in is actually Kittitas. Kittitas stands for fertile. So this is the fertile valley named from the Indians. And so this has more water that come off of the Cascades. So we have a really cool irrigation system. So everything on the valley floor is still really green and not so susceptible for drought. But I mean, every, everything else that's non-irrigated this year has been dry for months. And your irrigation there, that's all mountain water capture. Yeah. Big reservoir. Okay. I'm kind of starting to get a little bit familiar with that. That's a, uh, it's an odd way. You know, I just have to drill a hole and drop a pump down there 60, 70 feet and I get about 10 gallons a minute. And it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's nice cause it's reliable. I mean, I don't have to, I'm not depending on winter snowfall to make sure that I've got enough water to not only grow, grow grass, but to water livestock. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a problem here too, talking about grazing. Um, when the irrigation water shuts off, really nobody has, infrastructure to water cattle so even if you have stockpiled forage on your irrigated ground more than likely you have one to two water sources because of the irrigation i mean in the summertime when it's growing is mainly when everybody grazes it and then now you know nobody really plans to have a lot of 
feed stockpiled because around the it. Water is going to development instead of agriculture. Is that why? Uh, no, just because we're using water in cattle with the uh, irrigation water, and then when the irrigation water shuts off, there's no there's no stock water anymore. So I was I was just thinking of Brian saying that he's he's dropped drilling the well and putting the pump in there and it's reliable and he also has it for stock water. I was I was just thinking of that in my mind that that it is one of the constraints to stockpiling feed on irrigated ground here is that when yeah. water shuts off there's no no stock water in a lot of places. Oh well I you know in a drought I still have my well water but it's not near enough to irrigate even a fraction of, of what I have. So all my pastures yeah. are non-irrigated. Yeah. So are you talking like uh, like side rolls or center pivots or what kind of irrigation? Most of the cow pasture, I, I'm not familiar with the side roll, but most of the, the cow pastures are all flood irrigated. And so we'll just set dams with the big orange dam material where you put a, make a dam pole and dam material on it and you throw it in a ditch and jump on it and, Put some oh, rocks on it. Yeah. Poke it down I know what you're shovel. talking about. I think Brian, are you talking about wheel lines? Yeah, I call them wheel lines, but uh, they they had another name for it out in Colorado. What is it? Yeah, there's a lot of the. Sorry to interrupt you, CK. No, no, you're good. I'm interrupting you, so we're good. <laughs> a, a lot of the farm ground is all um, sprinklers. Yeah, but not too much as far pasture. What's what's the forage like in your pastures? Like, you know, obviously, if we're talking about something that's irrigated, it's probably going to be a non-native or quote improved grass. But what's the what kind of forage base are you dealing with? Um, a lot of meadow foxtail on the wetter spots. We've got a lot of Nebraska sedge. Um, it's real easy to get quite a bit of clover, but most of the clover that everybody has coming up is the, the white clover that doesn't really have a lot of volume or yield and you actually find it in the spots that are grazed down really tight the rock bars um and there's there is that you know people have planted to improve pastures so obviously there's a lot of red clover that people have tried to introduce um but i i would say consistently it just looks i don't know if you're familiar with meadow foxtail or not but that's probably the the majority of what the grass is and then depending on whether it's a wetter or drier area or, you know, what kind of, how you're managing your pasture to get more lagoons to come up. But most of the time the lagoon that everybody gets is white clover. And it's actually been a little bit funny for me because a lot of my friends that are grazing, I mean, it's got a great, great feed value. And when you graze your pastures down tighterly, like we've heard, heard a lot of people talk about, to get your lagoons to come up, you'll get a bunch of white clover, but it really, you don't get any yield. It doesn't get very tall. Um, you might get some great gains on cattle, but you're not, not getting any volume out of it. And I mean, the places where you see it the most is the, you know, the bull pastures, the horse pastures, the stuff that's getting grazed down super tight. So I always kind of laugh when all my buddies are bragging the about how much clover pastures. they have in their pasture. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> where I've actually seen the opposite in mine, where I'm, I'm getting more grasses and less lagoons than having to graze it tighter to try to keep them coming up when it really is the worst spots in my pasture that have clover. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, clover, because they don't have a, a tall stand, 
uh, you know, if there's bare ground, they aren't really competing with other tall grasses. Is that, does the foxtail, I don't think Brian and I are familiar with that at all. The, the meadow foxtails, does it have the same inflorescence or like the same seed head as like the weed foxtail? Or is it different? No, it looks more like a hay. I mean, if okay. you were to think of a typical meadow hay, um, yeah. we actually raise a lot of a lot of Timothy hay around here that gets exported, mm-hmm. and so Cleelum is one of the towns that's not too far from us. So the joke is that that it's Cleelum Timothy because um, the head looks so similar. So it's probably got a a three inch head that's pretty. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen it seen it quite a bit. I've I've seen oh, it probably. quite a few other right. Yeah. So, yeah. But the, the range ground has been pretty fun to see. I mean, we, we get a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of intermediate ryegrass. Um, this year, with it being drier, we've had a chance for some of the other other plants to flourish. Um, so there's, I, I'm going to say, twice as much alfalfa this year as what there was last year. And this spring, when I was going going up to my cow pasture and driving over to take inventory, I couldn't believe how many yellow flowers I saw. So talking about the diversity in the range grounds, I mean, I, there's this little hill I have to come up over and I can look down on a good chunk of my pasture. And it was, I mean, really just yellow flowers everywhere with the majority of it being mules here. Um, but the balsam air, balsam root, the arrowhead plant, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. But that plant is really easy to graze out, and you actually don't see it too often. And that was coming up in places that it had never been, um, which was really kind of neat for me to see. You know, and at first I looked at it, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, did I mess something up? And then kind of got out in the pastures and started looking around. And, it, I mean, it actually was actually was pretty neat to see the diversity starting to come back in the range ground from what it used to be. Diversity is always a good thing. Like, the, the more diverse our, our pastures are, the more nutritious they are for cows. So the, yeah, how does that, how are you finishing cattle now? Let's like transition and talk about how you're finishing now and in marketing and what you've been doing since COVID. Um, so the, the cattle, I mean, mainly because I, don't have a, a whole lot of money. I've been feeding cattle underneath hot wires. So in the, in the off season, when we wean calves, I'll bring the cows back. I'll graze off whatever residual is on the place that I'm going to feed at. And then I put hot wires up across the field, just the poly wires. And I'll go feed the cattle underneath those. And then I'll move the hot wires the next morning. And that's kind of when I make my feed calls. Um, but I end up with these uniform lines across my field with the cattle eating underneath them, which creates its own set of challenges, you know, keeping cattle in and having that much pressure on a hot wire. There's always some cattle to put back. Um, and I'll end up depending on the time of year, I'll end up with about 700 feed, 700 head on feed that I'm feeding like that. And really the only time the pastures have gotten messed up or when we get to a really wet area, and I don't move my hot wires far enough. And I mean, within, man, four, four or five days, it, it starts to get plugged up and I look at it and think, man, I really don't like that. And so now I've kind of gotten, I just move them farther and try not to get it as plugged up. But that, that's my feed bunk. So I don't have, 
I don't have a lot of money to work with. I've got a an old tractor and an old mixer box that I spent thirteen thousand dollars on when all the other comparable mixer boxes cost thirty thousand dollars. There's a reason one's thirteen. So I <laughs> gotten really good at welding pieces back on it and fixing conveyor chains. Um but we get brewer's grain from a local brewery that's six miles from my ranch. So that's kind of the base of my ration. The other thing that I get, because we export so much hay, they'll take take bales off the off the field in a conventional bale, small or big. They'll actually cut the strings, compress it down to wrap it and put it in containers and ship. So when they do that, they have quite a bit of hay that falls off. And rather than trying to put that hay back in a bale, they just push it out and that's called hay chaff. So it's also kind of another byproduct that's slightly undervalued. Um, so I've got the brewer's grain, the hay chaff, and then being so close to a rural, rural or a, not rural, but a, being so close to the city, I get a bakery byproduct. So it could be stuff that came back off the shelf. It could be stuff that they fell on the floor when they were making the bakery goods. Um, and it's, it's really sweet. I mean, it looks like a cake mix when it shows up. It's got a, a good smell to it, and that replaces the corn. So that that's the third part of my ration. That's pretty much it, except for the mineral package that goes in with it. And I thought that that would be a cool story and that people would kind of get behind taking the grain from the local brewery and feeding it to cattle and, and keeping it out of the landfill or keeping it from, you know, trucking it to a dairy that's an hour and a half away and, Really, nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, if they're if they're looking for for wholesome food that they care where it came from, they really do want grass fed. <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, and so the stuff, the product that I have is pretty marbled. It's got the best flavor that I've ever had out of out of any beef. Yeah, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but that brewer's green. I've fed it before. It's it's actually high in protein content, right? But it just takes because it's got the moisture in it, it just, you got to dry it down, right? So that stuff is actually, like, almost, like, not like corn, but it's it's pretty good as far as a feed supplement that's just a byproduct. Oh, yeah, it's great feed. It really, it, it's on a dry matter basis, it's going to test a lot yes. like a good alfalfa. It's but the it aspect feeds better than different, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, it feeds better than that. I mean, it it kind of binds the whole ration together because it's a little bit sticky in the wintertime. It's pretty cool when you're mixing it up because it's actually warm. So you're going and laying the hot, hot feet out for the cattle. Uh, uh, I used to feed it in college, Kyler. And so I would be, I would, you know, I would go out the night before and I would stay out till one or two in the morning and then have to go feed (laughs) at five in the morning. And that beer smell when you're hungover is the worst experience ever because <laughs> you're like oh i can't yeah. I cannot handle this right now so i just have to imagine yeah. that the cattle are, are feeling pretty good drinking that leftover uh spent distiller's brain yeah i feel like depending on how much i'm feeding i can tell a little difference in the way that they're acting yeah. but i don't i don't know that that's true it could just be that they're feeling good but i yeah similar story we we haul it in a construction side dump so it's a u-shaped trailer and it's in a silo that holds about 22 ton that's over top of the trailer on an air switch. And not very often, I, I have a friend that had was going to get the construction side dump anyway, so I told him, hey, I'll have a few loads a week for you if you want to haul it, which has worked out pretty good for both of us because it'll make his trailer payment and I don't have to mess with it. 
Um, but he has a full-time job. So when the alarm goes off, I'm the one that gets called in to go, go pick the grain up. And the exact scenario that you were talking about, and even worse, I had, I was hung over on the beer. The Iron Horse Brewery is the name of the brewery. And we had had, had a, a meeting and they had kind of hosted it. And so they had given, you know, they were giving free drinks to everybody. So I had four or five of those and they, you can have because they're free. Yes. Yeah. They hit a little harder than a normal Coors light. And so I was not feeling too spry the next day, got a phone call that the alarm had went off. So I backed the the trailer in underneath the silo and flipped the switch. And then you go to shut it off because there's so much moisture coming off, coming out of it. And I flip it down and I don't hear the gate close. And I immediately know what's happening. So I turn and start running as fast as I can run. And I mean, it looked like a bomb of brewer's grain went off. The whole silo emptied at one time, which was full with the alarm going off. And the whole back of me, I was wearing a baseball cap. I had probably an inch of brewer's grain on top of my baseball cap. The whole back side of me was covered. And the only part that didn't have brewer's grain on it was the front of me. (laughs) I... I know exactly what you're talking about when it's not very fun to be around that stuff when you're not feeling good, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. from being out too late. It's like the hand sanitizers that smell like vodka or tequila, you know, after the COVID shortage, it would just, yeah. it just brings back memories of, oh gosh, never. Yeah. <laughs> I can honestly say that after about 16 years of not drinking, those memories are very, very, very distant. Good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's probably not something that you miss at all. (laughs) No, I really don't. Big bar tabs, not something I got to worry about. So, (laughs) yeah. 25 pound beef boxes. Who's your customer and and how did you figure out the 25 pound beef box? Um, Really, that's about what we can fit in a 12 by 12 box. And we're trying to come up with assorted assorted steaks, assorted roast, and hamburger that's going to move a whole animal. So my, my thought the whole time was trying to move the entire animal. Um, so we've got three different 25-pound beef boxes that you're going to get assorted steaks out of. And so if you're one of the members that we have, we have, I think, four different tiers of memberships. And so you can sign up. You can pay monthly. We'll ship. Um, depending on how much beef you want, how often, um, we'll ship quarterly every other month or every month to you. And one of the coolest things, and I know, uh, Michael Kinsey has kind of given me some crap about this, but it has been pretty fun to figure out how to add more value to the animal. So everybody wants more steak pretty much all the time. And there are so many good steaks that people have not been getting. Um, I the tomahawk so, steak. I'm already going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the tomahawks are pretty pretty cool and it's i mean we all know that it's just it's a just bone the in your body so you're right. paying for the yeah. bone yes but when you're pulling them out there's something about it that makes you want to experience you know, make the, yeah. yeah make the tin the tool man tailor noise and go barbecue a tomahawk yep um but the getting all the other steaks put together and then we've kind of gotten into the, the barbecue community a little bit um, they've, they've been our biggest supporter so much and they want all the oddball cuts. And so there's so many of them that you, you can't find in the grocery store. So that's been one of our selling points is, you know, you're going to get 
all of these specialty cups off of a, depending on your subscription. That could be your, your tagline is not your grocery store steaks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got, got in trouble for saying that from some other cattlemen one time. I, oh, I can't really? remember what I thought yeah. but something, something about, um, are you tired of the grocery store hamburger? And I got blown up from everybody. I actually didn't even make the post, but my phone was blowing up about it. And those guys probably have no idea where their meat was ending up. (laughs) Probably not. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it, it all, it, it, it's all circling back and I hate to say it again because I'm starting to get kind of known for saying it, but shake the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Yeah. I use that all the time now that I've been hearing you say it. I should give you more credit for it. (laughs) So what's your target customer? What's your, uh, what's your customer demographic look like? I, I really don't even know right now. It's kind of all over the board. We have, you know, we have some people that really just want to know where their food has come from. When we've had an opportunity to bring people out and do a ranch tour, um, to me it's slightly embarrassing because I don't have a big fancy place and I run on a lot of lease ground. Um, but everybody, pretty much anybody that comes gets, gets pretty excited about that and feels good about it. Um, you know, we've got, I think the customer that we have is somebody that wants to know where their food has come from. Can't afford a half a beef or a quarter beef or a, a whole beef at one time, but they can lock in their price for a year. They can pay a monthly subscription and then get it in 25 pound boxes. Um, but we have, I don't know what the, the right demographic is and I really am not even sure what demographic I should be trying to market to. So we've been doing a lot on Instagram and the barbecue Instagram and Facebook and Instagram is where the barbecue community has really picked us up and, and taken off. And on Facebook is kind of more of the, the housewives that want to feed your family. And yeah. we really have not sold as many subscriptions to them. Um, a lot more of them have come off Instagram from people that are barbecuing all the time. You should try to do, um, sorry, interrupting again, but you should try. So I'm just thinking, like, this is what we do to figure out who our demographic is or who is, what's this insight. So I think what might be helpful is if the people who are subscribed now, that's your demographic. So I would figure out what's their age. Are they a family or are they like a single person? And then maybe some other simplified questions and then use those, those uh, metrics to Mm -hmm. filter out those Facebook or Google ads or um, Instagram sponsored things. If that's, if you guys are doing paid, paid advertising. Yeah. Well, and I, I signed up for an app called Barnes door. I don't know if you've seen any of that stuff. And it's actually a company from Washington. Okay, and good. They do the that, for you. That's then. kind of what yeah. they do is, yeah, we can get all those analytics and they can filter stuff for us and, you know, kind of know where we should be more pinpointed. Um, but the problem that we were having, I actually canceled that subscription because there wasn't much lenient. And so, for instance, with the subscription, one of the big things that's been selling for us is that you're paying for it monthly. And so yeah. I have a lot of friends that, that have um, – want to want to buy a beef box and i tell them oh yeah sure i'd love to set you up with one they say oh perfect how much is it and i say three hundred dollars and they kind of look at me and well 
what if I get 10 pounds of hamburger? <laughs> so um, when we went to barn to door, they wanted to charge every time there's a uh, fulfillment. So essentially you're signing up for the membership, but you really weren't, you weren't able to pay monthly for it. And that was one of the yeah. biggest reasons that we quit. And then the analytics were really, really cool when we were able to look at that. But that was kind of the only upgrade that we have. So I haven't dwelled too much into to trying to figure out what our demographic is. But the more the more we get out in front of people, I mean, every time we go to a farmer's market, it may not make a lot of sense that day to be selling at the farmer's market, but we'll sell one or two subscriptions every time we go somewhere. Um, and one of the things... What is that? What is the beef, the brand called? The, the, uh, P&W beef. P&W beef. Okay. Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For the layman. And, <laughs> yeah. And so there's a few other families involved in it. Uh, we all put cattle into it and have different, different levels of, of what everybody's part is, is doing with it. But one of the places has a, one of the families has a tree lot that actually sell Christmas trees and it's in downtown Seattle. And that's probably been one of the biggest successes is being able to go down there on a regular basis and be able to, to move beef buy boxes. Tree, and get buy your roast beef. Yeah. One of the big bummers right now is the shipping. It pretty much since COVID it, it's been, we were trying to ship all over the place. Now we came down to where we're just shipping in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Idaho, and Washington. And even then, um, <laughs> I don't have any more time to do anything. But I, then this is another reason we went with Barn to Door is because they make delivery routes. And we we're going to move in that direction. Unfortunately, trying to find the economy of scale to get another employee to do all that stuff isn't quite there yet. Everything's trending in the right direction, but a huge spike when COVID hit. I mean, we couldn't get enough meat fast enough. And now we're kind of figuring out what we're going to be able to move on a consistent basis. Um, so I think I'm going to change my format a little bit, keep the freezer space, get a pin of cattle finished, get them processed and in my freezer, and then just pull off of that. But I would love to do deliveries instead of trying to rely on UPS. That's been a big disappointment for me right now so far is the shipping. I remember there used to be a time 18 months ago when I could summon things to my door in less than 48 hours with a click of a mouse. And now it takes oh, a week. Not anymore. Yeah. No. We've been, uh, we've been fixing up the house here in Idaho. And just, so we've been having to do a lot more shopping, like in person shopping too. And just, there's a shortage everywhere of, 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 of staff, not just in ranching, but just everywhere, retail, even food chains. And like, I, I know that it's because people are getting more benefits by staying home. Um, but it's just sad to see these people who are willing to actually work, um, get kind of treated grumpily by other people who understand that there's a shortage and that, but it's like, they're showing up like you guys, come on. They're showing up when they could be getting paid more to, to not show up. It's been yeah. a while to see that. I really, I'm pretty secluded with where I'm at. And I right. mean, I hear a lot of people talking about that, but I, yeah. I really haven't seen too much of it. And even in our little area that's so close to Seattle, the restaurants yeah. got shut down and I heard more, more people griping about the restaurants being shut down than I did 
you know, having to go back to work. And it, it kind of seems like life's back to normal now, although we have a mask mandate again, so we have to wear masks when we go into town. Yeah. But So, Kylie, what are I you really doing? Yeah, what are you doing to prevent burnout? So this is something that we talked about in an episode with Brittany Cole Bush. I'm like, we're just trying to not burn out. And I think I just want, like, it sounds like you're overextended. So I just want to ask that question. <laughs> Um, I'm the, I'm the wrong person to ask that question. Yeah, I did not prevent I burnout. Ask you, Cause I want you to think about it. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm actually going to make some pretty big changes. Uh, I've kind of texted Brian back and forth a little bit about this. So getting back to the, you know, the ranching for profit model where you want to control your cost and limit your overheads. A lot of what I've been doing, um, I've been getting more and more overheads the whole time I've going and had a lot of successful moments, but I'm, I'm at a point now where, I'm doing a whole lot of stuff that I don't want to be doing. Right. Um, so the property that I purchased has almost doubled in value. Um, and one of the other families that that's in the, the P and W beef, the beef maker families are what we call them. Um, yeah. they actually have quite a bit of farm ground and quite a bit of equipment. So I, I'm actually going to list my property and sell it. I'm essentially going to take all my overhead, get rid of them, <laughs> yeah. go back to running on lease property. Um, not have, not have any debt. I mean, it all kind of depends on what I can sell the property for, but theoretically be 100% debt free and get back to doing more, more grazing, horse riding, um, more dogs, be able to continue with the P and W beef stuff and not have, not have half the overhead and potentially be able to be done in an eight hour day or, or sooner, or at least be able to do more of what I want to be doing. So. I'm probably the poster boy for getting burnt out and doing too much. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I can prevent it, but I know that I'm going to make some big changes in well, my it operation. Sounds like you're I thinking about how to do it though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I was, I was kind of of the mind that I was going to be able to, to just put my head down and, and go through it. And, you know, a lot of when I started buying cattle, I was buying undervalued cattle out of the sale barn. And I wasn't doing the buy-sell marketing, but I was buying a weight class that was undervalued, growing them up, backgrounding them, and being able to resell them. And my, the, death, the death loss that I've had, um, I mean, I, I don't mass treat cattle on arrival. It pretty much is stockmanship. I do vaccinate and deworm, especially sale barn cattle. Um, but that part, I've had a lot of successes doing that. And that was kind of what jump-started me to be able to buy the property. And then I ended up with some undervalued cows. So I want to get back to doing, I mean, after listening to a podcast mainly, I want to go learn more about the buy-sell marketing plan and and kind of dabble on that a little bit. But I don't want to go borrow a bunch of money to do it. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to getting back to where I started where I was the most successful and kind of getting out of some of this other stuff that's dragging me down. Oh, my, my good friend, uncle Wally Olson puts on a great marketing school down in Oklahoma. It's close to an airport even. Yeah. He's one of the guys that I've listened to. On a, yeah. Well, <laughs> I've known Wally. Oh gosh. Wally's been in my life for probably close to 30 years. And uh, I I remember when he was going to learn from Bud Williams, from Bud and Eunice Williams. And mm-hmm. 
Wally Wally spent quite a bit of time with Bud, and he got he learned an awful lot. And I tell you that that marketing course that he puts on, I got a heck of a lot out of it, even though I'm not a trader. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of I've been looking at that I've. I, I can't remember who the podcast was. I think it might have been the Herd Quitter podcast that I saw him on. Yeah, I think he was, listened to him on. Yeah, I think Herd Quitter's probably where he's been most recently. We need to get yeah. him on here one of these days. So, yeah. what? Uh, what's the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in the last couple of years, and what did it teach you? Oh man. Um, I don't know if I've overcome any challenges, but I'm trying to think. I mean, probably the the biggest is needing to to stay on top of my stay on top of my footwork, kind of the WAPB stuff. I get really caught up in the working in the business stuff because that's what I like to do, and I'm a terrible procrastinator at everything else. Um, but probably my biggest my biggest challenge going forward or one of the biggest things that I want to work on is staying on top of the working, working on the business stuff and not getting behind in that aspect. And then really organizing my time. I mean, talking about the burnout, um, there's a lot of days I've been gone way too much, way too long. And, and again, not doing the kind of stuff that I want to be doing and being away from my family. So that's, that's probably been the biggest challenge that I've, had is is overstepping and managing my time and you know trying trying to overcome that and really it just has to do with i guess at the end of the day you know what i what i learned from it is it might be a little bit more important than what i was thinking that it would be you know it's it's something that a lot of us struggle with kyler i really think it is but so what's what's something that you wish that you could go back and tell yourself the first day you started down your ranching career? Oh, man. That, that's a tough one. And, and I mean, the worst part is going to ranching for profit to start with. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I did that I shouldn't have, they talk about not doing it. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of thought that I'd be able to pull it out, but probably the the thing that has put in the most, put the most amount of stress on me was trying to buy property, which is really, you know, in the end has turned out to be, it'll end up being a really good thing and, and a great investment, but that probably put the most amount of stress on me. Um, if I would have just stuck to my custom grazing business and, and doing what I know how to do and sticking to that plan, I think life would have been, Life would have been a lot easier. Ride horses in the wintertime, run cattle in the summertime. That was kind of how I started out. Life was pretty enjoyable then. That sounds like you're making some moves to kind of head back that direction. Yeah. So besides the school that shall not be named again, <laughs> what are uh, what are some good books, good resources, good schools that you've come across that have helped you out a lot? Um, I mean, for me, the, the, the Dr. Nofsinger, his stockmanship clinic is kind of really all I've been exposed to. I haven't traveled too far to, to go to much, but that's probably just the idea of the stockmanship and what you're looking for has helped me out as much as anything. Um, 
my favorite book, um, I mean, honestly, one of my favorites is probably Rich Dad, Poor Dad, even though it's not a, not a grass book or a, a ranching book. That's probably one of my favorites. You can listen to it too on Spotify, right? Okay. Or, yeah, it's an audio book. I just listened to that. It's a, it's honestly pretty similar to some principles in RFP, I would think. Yeah. It was actually one of the books that was on their reading list. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in the back of the – yes, yes. Yeah. I think yeah. I I think I read that like isn't that like twenty years old? That's been it's around old, a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I was listening to it as I was painting the house, and it. So can we talk about that? Because because one of the things that I was I think I've always kind of thought of it is like buying a buying a house or buying a property is actually more of a liability than it is an asset, right? And so for the way that he said that and framed it was like. There's, it actually should be in the risk column and not the asset column, right? De- depending on what you're doing with the property, yeah. Yeah, because you have taxes, a- you have infrastructure stuff that you have to maintain. Um, it's not always, not always an asset. I mean, if it's a, you know, if it's another enterprise to an existing business that provides its own cash flow, then yes, you know, it's not such a risk. But if it's a dwelling that, you know, if it's a place that's just straight up cost, yeah, it's it's probably in the risk column. Yeah, I, I think in the book he talks about an asset is something that puts money in your pocket. A liability is something that takes it out. So if you don't, if you buy a, a rental house and you don't get out of bed in the morning and it's putting money into your bank account, then it would be an asset. If you're living in it then it would be a liability. So what motivates Kyler Beard to get out of bed, if not rental income? <laughs> uh, I really love what I'm doing. I mean, I love being around cattle. I love the regenerative agriculture movement to feel like I'm, I'm getting out and doing something good for the, the community and the environment and the, and feeding people. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty noble act you know, coming from the rodeo world, I liked what I was doing there, but that really is recreation. And I feel like what I'm doing now is really contributing to society. And that, that probably is one of the, one of the things that gets me excited the most about what I'm doing. Um, trying to do the best that I can actually trying to improve ground. Uh, the verdict's still out on, on some of that stuff, but, um, that's probably what I'd say gets me out of bed in the morning. Good enough reason. Sounds like good enough reason to me. So where can we find you on social media? I, I know I found you on TikTok, <laughs> but uh, go ahead and tell us where, where we can find you on social media and on the internet. Um, on, on TikTok and Instagram, I'm Beefmaker. I think I'm Beefmaker428 on, on Instagram. And then the, the beef website is pnwbeef.net. Um, and, and that's it pretty much. Okay. Is there anything, um, anything you need to get off your chest? Anything we didn't cover you want to talk about? (laughs) I think we talked about a whole bunch of stuff I wasn't planning on. I'd probably talk too much. That's okay. (laughs) 
There's no script. I don't have a script. It starts with a white a piece of, of paper. A lot of guests <laughs> say that, though, Brian. is like, oh, I, w- I didn't know we were going to talk about this. This We're just chilling. Yeah. We're talking. <laughs> yeah. You guys got me talking about stuff I haven't even thought about in 15 years. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything you'd like to ask either one of us? Um, I should have prepared a couple questions. I can't can't think of anything right off the top of my head. Um, you know, I'll, I'll have to think about that and get back to you later. It won't make the podcast, but <laughs> I know I've had a million a million questions for you before, and I can't think of one right now. It's probably not really fair to you know grill you for an hour and fifteen minutes and then be like, "Oh, hey, is there anything you want to talk to me about? Is there anything you want to ask me?" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Kyler, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. All right, thank you for joining us today, and I think this is uh, probably a good place to go ahead and wrap her up and end. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep, thank you. I hope you sell your property for twice or three times what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. Hopefully it's the Next guy that drives down sees your for sale sign. <laughs> yeah. All right. Have a great evening, guys. All right. You too. Bye.